you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Sixth Sense Report. The Sixth Sense Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You're listening to the Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Bro, man, I'm definitely feeling blessed on this one. And I know you're going to give me a hard time for saying it. Yeah, because you, <laughs> you always say that. <laughs> well, that. well and, and there's, you know, an extent of, uh, let's say, feeling extra blessed because, you know, our, our guest is willing to come back after uh, we have to do this for a second time. Okay, yes. And that in that case, um, in that case, yes, this is this is a blessing. So, uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, Chris Kinsinger, to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, no, no problem, Chris. Uh, so, for the listeners who don't know who you are, can you give them a, a brief background on yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm a lawyer here in Ontario. I was called to the bar last year in 2020. After that, I decided to go back to school and pursue my master's in law. So, I'm just finishing up uh, that program now. And then my full-time job that I'm just transitioning into is as the national director of a group called the Runnymede Society. So they're a nonpartisan coalition of Canadian law students and scholars and jurists. And we're committed to exploring and promoting the principles of constitutionalism, freedom, and the rule of law. So we do that mostly in law schools uh, throughout Canada. We have chapters at most of the English-speaking law schools. We're hoping to expand our presence in some of the Francophone civil law schools as well. We host uh, a big conference in Toronto every January called the Law and Freedom Conference. And outside of that, I'm, I'm involved uh, in some other organizations as well. I serve on the board of directors of Christian Legal Fellowship, and I'm uh, a deacon as well with my church in uh, Cambridge. Whoa. Uh, sorry, man. Can I, can I ask you uh, how old you are? <laughs> 28 okay that's a lot that's a lot of stuff you do man yeah it's it's fun <laughs> it's uh it's it's good to keep busy you know um and i'm i'm one of those people that i find i uh i i do well when i have a lot going on but it's it's also um something i've been learning this past year is that it's important to be very intentional when you have a lot going on to make time for rest and i found in particular you know um uh, not that anyone you have to take your Sabbath on the Sunday, but for me, I, I observe my Sabbath on the Sunday and just being very intentional about, you know, um, leaving my Sunday open and not trying to do work if I can help it on Sunday. And it makes me more productive for the rest of the week. Uh, and it makes me do better at things uh, if I have that day of rest to to be with God's people, to worship, to be with my family, to just lie on the couch and uh, and recharge. So, right. And now I first heard about you uh, through your writing uh, for National Post. So you also do that as well. I've written a few pieces for the post. Yep, I do a little bit of uh, freelance work when I can. Um, oh I, I enjoy I enjoy writing. I enjoy doing editorials. But you know, I was I was just saying to someone the other day, it's it, when you um, because my focus is very much kind of on uh, legal issues and and the intersection between law and religion. 
um, you got to wait for those moments when there's something to write about. And, uh, so, and, and I think that's, that's the best approach. If you don't have something to say, then probably don't say it. Wait until you actually have some sort of, uh, insight to offer that's going to be valuable. So I try to write when I can, when something is in the news. The downside, of course, being that if I have to write about the intersection of law and religion, it's probably because something less than great is happening. Mm. Right. Right. Yeah. So oh, totally. I, I, I'm curious, you know, as to to some extent, like, let's say your motivations, because I, I'm guessing there's an aspect of, you know, what, what drew you to the, the law. You know, I'm assuming there's a lot of, let's say, writing and arguments and structure in, in terms of just that profession. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, I see that you got into, you know, why the masters? And then also, you know, even as a, I see law student intern with Christian fellow, Christian legal fellowship, right? So you're, you, we're drawn to these type of things early. I'm assuming with Christian Legal Fellowship, you know, writing's involved there. It's as as part of that role. So what, you know, what is it personally that motivates you to whether it's the masters or all the writing or even the profession, you know, what is it that drew you in into all this? Yeah, if we go back to undergrad, I I always knew that law was going to be an option, but for a while I actually thought that I would go down Um, a more academic path in what I was studying at the time, which was history. And I love history and I love, um, I love legal history. I also love church history, but I, I realized, you know, toward uh, the latter half of my undergraduate degree that uh, history and, and doing my master's in history probably wasn't something that was going to kind of satisfy what I wanted to do. And then in 2014, I got introduced to Christian Legal Fellowship uh, through their Christian Legal Institute program. So that was something that uh, my pastor at my church, uh, Sean Sheeran, put me in touch with. And that was a real eye opener uh, that week. It was a week long program in May of 2014. And it really uh, showed me that law is for Christians uh, a calling. And there's an opportunity in law uh, to take these skills and abilities and to put it to kingdom work. And so I think it was a really good fit for me because I do like to think in, you know, systematic ways and I I enjoy um I enjoy rules and, and doctrines and, and all these things and I enjoy a good argument and um and crafting uh arguments and 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 of course writing as well. So CLF has been a big part of that and they have really supported me for from the start, um, I had an opportunity to intern with them my summer before law school. And then the following summer, I uh, actually was sponsored by my law school, Osgood Hall, to go spend the summer working for them, which was a real privilege. And after that, I joined their board uh, as their student representative. And I'm now uh, in my second term on their board. And uh, I love doing it. It's, you know, again, because I think CLF is just so been so crucial for my own success, uh, any success that I've enjoyed. But uh, more broadly, I really believe in the work that they're doing. And there really isn't any other organization out there, um, not only that represents Christian lawyers, but that is endeavoring to speak into the legal profession from a distinctly Christian point of view. And um, if you look, you know, if you look them up on uh, law databases, if you go to Canley, org for example and you type in christian legal fellowship you'll see that they've been intervening in some of the most uh 
important religious freedom uh, cases that have come before our courts and their submissions have, in my view, been always very, uh, very balanced, very thoughtful, rooted in the law, and yet also uh, born out of Christian conviction. So a uh, big plug for CLF. I think their work they're doing is um, just so crucially important. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. No, I've, I've, I'm familiar with the work. And I think, Joel, Joel, you're familiar with the work as well, right? Yeah, definitely. And, and yeah. you know, I would say I would definitely agree. They're filling, they're helping fill a, a gap. Um, and, and, you know, obviously inspiring people like you to, to step into that gap is uh, important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we did an episode, I can't remember what it was, uh, on Church and State. And episode 35. The, episode 35. Oh, oh, episode 35. I, I, can't, this- I can't prepare. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. So, so uh, in that episode, uh, we talked about um, that church and state is separate but mm-hmm. there's overlap with religion and politics uh mm-hmm. and actually dr joe boot would argue that um politics is religion so my question for you is um how do you balance being a lawyer and a christian hmm. no that's a really good question i i agree with that sentiment um that politics is religion you know, it's been said on the other um, end that everything is politics, but I, I think it more accurately, it is to say that everything is religion. And I think in doing so, we kind of have to take a step back and think about what religion is. And I think in Canada, um, and this is part of the the result of, you know, uh, liberal political theory is we have this sense that religion is something that's private and it's something that goes on in our churches and in our homes um, but we don't bring it into the public square because religion is seen as somehow being unrational um, and and we want rational thought to inform political discourse but if we define religion functionally then I think everyone is religious. Everyone uh, is is serving some sort of God, whether that's actually a deity or whether it's some other idol, whether it's um, an idol of, of success or whether it's an idol of ideology, we're all serving something. And uh, uh, Andrew T. Walker, he's an ethicist from the Southern Baptist Seminary down in the States, just had a, a book that came out called uh, Liberty for All, and in the preface, and I haven't finished the book yet, um, so I'm hoping to write a review of it later. But in the preface, he talks about how humans were made to worship. And so that's reflected um, in everything we do and how we interact publicly. And uh, there are other theologians that have touched on similar points. I'm a, I'm a, been very much influenced by um, Jonathan Lehman of Nine Marks Ministries, and he talks a lot about how um, how in a lot of ways uh, everything is uh, religious and, and all laws are religious in the sense mm-hmm. that every law is informed by some sort of normative conception of the good. And so the temptation is to look at a law like a prohibition against murder and to look at that and say, well, that's not a religious law because all religions agree on that. 
But that's precisely why it is a religious law. So what Lehman says is that in the public square, there's a religious overlap and religious consensus. But at the same time, he emphasizes that the public square is this battleground of gods and each god is trying to pull the levers of power in its favor. So as a Christian, for me, working broadly in the realm of law, which obviously has some relation to the realm of, of public policy, although you know there are discussions about how much law and public policy should overlap. I think having that mindset is useful because it gives me confidence that my faith isn't something I have to leave at the door when I, I move into uh, the legal sphere, because everyone is going to be bringing their faith or their religion with them. And that's just unavoidable. And so I can do that. I mean, I mentioned earlier, I, I work for a group called the Runnymede Society. The Runnymede Society is not a Christian organization, and I'm not trying to remake it into a Christian organization. But I, I, um, I'm excited to work for the Runnymede Society because they believe in these principles that would allow for people like myself who are uh, openly religious to bring those perspectives to bear. And so my hope is that um, that is the um, sort of forum that we can create is one in which these perspectives are are welcomed and are taken seriously. So I want to I want to push back a little bit on the, the the what you said about like even um, uh, a law like you know being against murder being inherently religious. Sure. And pushback might not be the right word, but but I think there's a bit of nuance there because you know for people who are let's say like myself a little bit more libertarian leaning you know the thought that comes to mind is well these are things where there's a victim and you know those in, uh, involve inalienable rights and the concept mm -hmm. of inalienable rights well as a christian i would say is a direct uh has is directly correlated to uh the sanctity of life mm -hmm. i think that some people can at least try to make the rational argument for inalienable rights with removing you know that concept or removing the concept of god and so to some extent using the concept of inalienable rights if you've let's say argumentatively derived it without uh, a god concept or uh, sanctity of life is 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 there a little bit more nuance there to say that okay maybe if you know my i guess my thought is well how do you call that religious if if you're not using a spiritual or or um, God-centered foundations to come to that principle, that's a good question, and and definitely it, it it is a nuanced one. I I think ultimately when we're talking about you know this kind of gets into broader discussions about the role of uh, of natural law and um, you know you talk about the idea of inalienable rights, but even that idea of inalienable rights presupposes. Um, certain things right and and there are some things that need to be taken on faith to get there so the traditional christian conception of inalienable rights is rooted in the idea that we're all made in the image of god and i suspect we're going to kind of unpack this a little bit more like the theology of mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. you know the relationship between church and state and religious freedom but that's really the starting point and i think that is something that has been revealed through general revelation and that is something that everyone can affirm even if they don't ultimately recognize the source of that and that's you know kind of what paul talks about when he speaks about the gentiles being a law unto themselves when they do what the law requires 
So I, I think ultimately we can try to uh, rationalize everything to the point that there's, you know, somehow this um, non-religious perspective. But I think everyone is taking something on some measure of faith. And, and as Christians, we would say that that's being drawn from um, truths of, of general revelation, which God in his common grace has, has opened up to mankind and made it uh, possible for, for mankind to, uh, to witness and to bear witness to. Now, before you, uh, the, the, in the lost tapes, I'll call it. <laughs> the lost days. So uh, you, you talked about um, the idea of uh, the Quebec Bill C, um, Bill C-21, and you mm-hmm. were doing an article on it, and you were incorporating some elements of theology into that. Mm-hmm. Um, can you um, expound a little bit on that in light of what you just said? Yeah, I actually just pulled it up as as you were saying that. I'm reworking the piece um, as we speak and and submitting the final version. And uh, so, some of the theological elements uh, on the advice of my editors have have been um, uh, downplayed a little bit. But I do try to pull on um, some of these views. Um, so I do quote uh, Jonathan Lehman in the piece in which he, uh, for example, talks about how religion. Uh, he describes it as a worldview lens through which we we come to hold our uh, political commitments. Because in uh, in this sense, the quote is that uh, any and every position that a person might adopt in the political sphere relies on a certain conception of human beings, their rights, and their obligations towards one another, creation, and God. End quote. And that's from his book, uh, Political church at page 81 for anyone who's curious. Um, But that's something that even Christians have more or less affirmed. One of the other um, writers, philosophers that I quote in the article is Ronald Dworkin, who was an avowed atheist, and uh, he was a jurisprudential um, theorist, and he describes religion as, quote, a deep, distinct, and comprehensive worldview that holds that inherent objective value permeates everything, that the universe and its creatures are awe-inspiring, that human life has purpose, and the universe order. Now, it's interesting because obviously Dworkin um, was, was an atheist, but he is essentially affirming a, a very religious way of thinking about the world. And Dworkin would have actually called himself a religious atheist. And so I think there's that importance of breaking down what religion is, not so much as being a faith in a, a deity, but functionally uh, it's um, the, the values that define us and the ways in which those values um, determine the the how we view our obligations towards one another and to um, creation. So, so there's, there's kind of the, the, the you know, the, the functional definition of religion. And then on the other hand, there's perhaps the more traditional definition. And I think when we're thinking about the relationship between institutions like the church and the state, having that functional definition is helpful. Okay. And for those people who aren't too clear on Bill C-21, um, what is the issue there? Sorry, you asked about Bill 21, and I and I totally forgot to talk about it. So Bill 21 <laughs> oh, is Bill a 21, law that, 
No, that's okay. Um, was a law passed by the legislature of Quebec in June 2019. Its full title is an act respecting the laissez-faire of the state. And effectively, what it does is it prohibits um, most of the province's public employees, so civil servants, from wearing any kind of religious symbols while they're on the job. So, for example, um, like a police officer or a public prosecutor, a school teacher, what have you, would not be able to wear any kind of religious symbols. So this would range from something like a crucifix to uh, for Sikh people, perhaps a kirpan um, to perhaps uh, a hijab or a niqab or something like that for Muslim people. And effectively, as I see it, what the problem is, if we start by looking at religion as being functional, and we think of it as being functional, then everyone is religious. And so the supposed neutral identity that Bill 21 wants public employees to adopt isn't actually in that sense neutral. It's a different religious identity. And so saying to a, a public employee um, that you cannot even give the appearance that you are religious, you have to give the appearance that you are non-religious is to insist that they adopt a religious identity that's alien to their own. Mm. Now, that's a very different thing from saying that a public employee can't um, let their faith, um, you know, determine what their duties are in their role as a public employee. Obviously, there is this duty in terms of carrying out their um, their role that, you know, for example, a teacher can't uh, come in if they work in a public school and just use that as an opportunity um, to, to proselytize all the students. There, there is, you know, a, a, a distinction there. But when we're talking about just the mere visible appearance of religion, what Bill 21 is trying to do is, is create this society where religion, as I was saying earlier, is seen as a private thing and is seen as something that cannot be brought into the public square in any meaningful way. And I see this as being uh, really disconcerting and uh, a number of other faith-based groups, including Christian Legal Fellowship, feel the same way. And so CLF was actually just granted leave to intervene in the appeal of that case before the Quebec Court of Appeal uh, that the, the Quebec Superior Court upheld the law um, for some fairly uh, technical constitutional reasons, which we can get into later if you like. But uh, most people suspect that this is going to be litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we only briefly touched that uh, issue when we were talking about the, um, the, the election, because that's sort of when it, when it showed up. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I would say, to some extent, I thought there was a level of rationality to it where, you know, when someone's in their role, you know, I think you use the proper term proselytizing, right? Like, okay, yeah, when you're in your government role that you shouldn't proselytize, whatever you're, whether you're, I would argue, whether you're atheist or, you know, Christian or anything in between. Um, mm -hmm. But, but I think you make a really good, I, I'd never thought of it that way, but I think it's a really good point to say, yeah, but forcing people to, especially like if you think of, um, you know, if there's, let's say, garments that are cultural and religious, you know, where do you draw mm -hmm. the line? Um, you know, I think about a, a Sikh, right? And and mm -hmm. is there a component where you would say, oh, well, that's religious, but it's also cultural? Um, mm -hmm. And so I think your point about it going all the way to the Supreme Court makes total sense. And um, I think you're you have an article in um, 
the National Post, and I think the way you finish it out is is perfect to sort of summarize this. So the article was the um, can the notwithstanding clause be used to violate pre-existing rights? Because mm-hmm. um, I think you sort of tie that into uh, Bill Twenty One, um, mm-hmm. and and you finish the sentence with this, or you finish the article with, regardless of the outcome, one thing is certain: the fate of Bill Twenty One stands to fundamentally alter. The course of Canadian constitution, constitutionalism, um, mm-hmm. and and I just wanted to to use that as a preface to get into this concept where, you know, I think there's a fundamental break both in society and and maybe intentionally on the pol- political side from what was the true origins of separation of church and state. You know, if I think about you know back to 16th, 15th, and and early centuries. The issue was that law and government was being used to enforce a particular, let's say, worldview or moral view, um, mm-hmm. and and there was a, a intentionality to say no that you the the state doesn't have influence on morality anymore. It doesn't influence what people are going to believe uh, with respect to morality, and mm-hmm. obviously we sort of touched on before how. You know, a law like murder still has a religious piece to it, but it's almost like, you know, I would argue the especially the liberals in Canada are trying to use the law as a means to cultivate a moral standard, which essentially is to cultivate a particular religion. And and mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, it seems like we need to almost redefine what separation in church of and of state separation of church and state means to be more encompassing of all worldviews. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that and, and, you know, is that even, is it even possible? Because to some extent, I think you're going to say, well, all law has morality to it built in one way or another. Mm-hmm, absolutely. No, I, I think you're right. And there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I think as a starting point, I, you know, this would be perhaps my turn to to push back a bit. I, I don't think the point is that we don't want law to um, coerce morality because law is at its core normative. And even if we take something really boring, right, we take like zoning bylaws, there's a normative component to even zoning bylaws, because we're saying that we think it's desirable and good for the benefit of the community to order how development takes place to determine where, you know, commercial buildings are going to be made, where like residential properties can be and so forth. So I think the point when we're trying to determine okay, what is the rationale for religious freedom, the religious neutrality of the state? How does this determine the institutional uh, distinctives between the church and the state is to frame it less in terms of morality, because the government, the state is always going to be doing something that is trying to orient us towards some sort of morality, but to think of it less in those terms and more in terms of worship. And, and there is, there is a little bit of, um, you know, it, it is hard to distinguish between the two, but the point being with religious freedom is that it's not the role of the state to compel worship, to determine what constitutes right worship, even in terms of what constitutes uh, the right God to worship. 
And the way Derek Ross, the executive director of Christian Legal Fellowship, puts it, uh, and he writes, he has this paper that came out uh, last year in the Supreme Court Law Review on Section 2 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which guarantees, amongst other things, freedom of religion. He argues that the connective tissue between all of those freedoms, freedom of expression, peaceful assembly, religion, etc., is truth-seeking. And so the rationale for these guarantees is that we don't want the state to be compelling us or to be directing truth-seeking in the sense that they are directing us towards what the object of our worship should be or how we should worship. But that being said, there's an interesting conversation then about whether or not the role the state has any role in terms of the conscience. And going back to Jonathan Lehman again, he would say that, uh, I believe this is what Lehman said, I hope I'm not misquoting him, but essentially uh, there is a sense in which the state binds consciences, right? So when the state says you shall not murder, uh, it is binding my conscience insofar as I am not allowed to commit murder, even if I think murder is morally justified or required. So th there is a sense in which we are being um, uh, morally compelled towards certain things. And the way I've kind of arrived at in my own thinking to kind of where is that line between compelling worship and compelling some sort of morality is to really think about the two greatest commandments. Uh, that that Christ laid out uh, and that are reflected in the Ten Commandments in, in the first and second table of the Decalogue. So there's the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the second greatest commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. So as a Christian, I look at that and I say that the state's role pertains uh, to the second of those commandments, to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, but the state's role does not pertain to the first, to love the Lord your God, in the sense that the state isn't going to police or punish idolatry or heresy, but it does have this God-given task to uh, promote order and well-being amongst his image bearers. And so uh, a number of, of theologians, would, including Lehman, and I believe, um, uh, I'm forgetting his name, um, but... Uh, I think David Van Druen would point back to the Noahic covenant as kind of the source of, of mm -hmm. human authorities, right? When, when God made this covenant with humanity uh, through Noah and said, by man shall man's blood be shed for God made man in his image. So there's the rationale. God made man in his image, which means that as divine image bearers we have obligations that we owe to other divine image bearers and that is um the the um the source of legitimacy for human authority but crucially in the noahic covenant god did not give humans the authority to police idolatry or heresy when it comes to himself now obviously there are, there are different circumstances you have um, ancient israel which was um uh, under a, a very specific uh, covenant in that particular case and as well we we have in in the new covenant in christ's blood there is a role in which the church uh, as a different institution uh orients us toward worship and god but um but there there though that's broadly speaking how i would break down or at least define what the role of the state is and and try to justify why the state ought not to be 
uh, compelling worship. And so in that sense, that's why we would say the state has to be religiously neutral. Mm. Okay, yeah, that's, that gives us a lot to think about because like, I think about the biblical rationale for religious freedom. So how, how is it distinct from Christian liberty? This is good. So I think we can go back and, and, and I don't think obviously, you know, I was referring to the Old Testament there. So I don't think that religious freedom is a recent innovation. I think we can see biblical rationales for it uh, going back into the Old Testament. Um, and I want to be careful here that I'm not just kind of taking my my 21st century concepts, which have been in many ways informed by all the different you know political theories of the day and and pushing that back and projecting that onto scripture. But I do think there are ways in which we can see overlap and we can see the rationale for that there. But I don't think it's a coincidence that Protestants in particular have tended to emphasize religious freedom, uh, perhaps more than other Christian traditions. And I think that's largely born out of the relationship between Christian liberty and religious freedom and, and how that came to a head during the Reformation. Because for someone like uh, Luther, who took a very hard stance on this, uh, Christian liberty is is that relationship between the individual and God. And that relationship, that relationship of the conscience is not to be mediated by any human authority. And I, I, I broadly agree with Luther on that. I, I think uh, he was correct. And so that provides uh, a few rationales in, in terms of religious freedom. It means that the state as an institution cannot coerce or compel worship. But it also means on the flip side that the church is not the one um, that, that, that sanctifies an individual or or that um, imputes righteousness to them that that is uh, only uh, by grace alone and and through faith alone and so there's this rash you know we can go back to the solas of the reformation and, and in particular sola fide and sola gratia and we can pull from that um, to, to this idea that the christian uh, their conscience is ultimately um, they are accountable for their conscience before god and so uh, others are not to dictate um, elements of conscience to the Christian. Now, that works in theory. And I think what happened kind of following Luther is that you, you, you saw other theologians um, like Calvin who had to come and kind of work out perhaps how the, the role of the church fits into that and how discipleship fits into that. And I think that the main point that we can see is that the role of the church is non-coercive. It's primarily declarative, and its authority is ultimately rooted uh, in the authority of Scripture, so um, uh, in, and not in terms of, of what any uh, human authority says, not in terms of tradition, not in terms of what the Pope says. And so from that, we, we again see this idea of Christian liberty that that the the individual believer is is accountable before god that scripture is the authority uh and that human authorities including the church uh don't intervene to to dictate matters of conscience now now if we could kind of change lanes a bit but not so much uh i believe well a couple episodes ago we had uh david Coises, uh the author of uh political illusions 
And mm-hmm. he was talking about um, how we take good things, virtues, and we elevate it to a place of deity and it becomes an ideology. And so like this is, he argues, this is what we see um, when it comes to uh, politics being religious, mm-hmm. that we're elevating something that's good and trumping it over other virtues. Mm. Um, so how do you, what, what's your perspective on the ideas of ideology and idolatry? I'm glad you, you raised David's book because I'm reading it right now as part of um, a program I'm doing with the think tank Cardis, uh, their, their next gen fellowship program, which is this really cool, you know, uh, program that brought together uh, 12 young Christians of which I'm one. And, and we're working through all these readings over the course of the next year. And mm-hmm. that's the book that we're reading right now. So I haven't finished it yet, but uh, I, I like his conception of ideology as being a, a form of idolatry because i think uh that helps us to to de- you know to acknowledge the ways in which uh ideology can be at times useful but as you say we can take something that is good and we can make it ultimate and that's ultimately what idolatry is mm-hmm. uh, we know that every good thing comes from god and there are lots of good things in this world that we can take and elevate to a position that effectively we, we elevate that thing above God himself. And, you know, that can be um, our careers, that can be our families, it can be material possession, it can be any number of things. It can be knowledge, uh, it can be creation, right? Like it, it goes on and on and on. And so what I think with ideology as Christians, our approach, and, and this is really kind of inescapable even for, for lawyers who, you know, um, obviously there's this kind of bigger debate about the relationship between law and politics and, and how much should lawyers be attenuated to political and policy concerns. But um, I think to have as Christians in the backdrop of our minds that our ultimate authority, as I was saying, kind of um, with regard to Christian liberty, is uh, scripture. And that is the the benchmark against which we measure at everything else. We can recognize ways in which ideologies can be helpful and can be useful and even where there's overlap, but we have to kind of keep them in their proper place. So again, I know I've quoted Jonathan Lehman quite a few times, and that's because I'm a very big fan. Maybe he'll follow me on Twitter after this <laughs> podcast episode. Yeah. But, right. uh, we'll, we'll tag him. <laughs> but um he he's got uh he had a good piece uh that came out and it was called i believe uh conservatives clash on the role of government and he basically talks about the ways in which uh christians and in particular christians who would consider themselves to be conservatives need to have um, um a hallway conversation amongst themselves before they go out into um, the public square. And he talks about, he makes a good distinction between um, supporting institutions and supporting the theory behind those institutions. So as an example, um, like Lehman, I would broadly support the the liberal political institutions uh, that we see in in Canada and throughout much of the Western world. I don't think they're perfect, but on the whole, I think that they have uh, they've been good for us, and and we've um, they've helped facilitate important guarantees like uh, the fundamental freedoms. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that I consider myself to be a classical liberal. And so uh, David in his book um, talks about the ways in which liberalism really is, is an elevation of the individual. And so I am wary of turning the individual into something ultimate where the, the individual becomes um, the dictator of, of what, is, um, what is right and what is good. And I think that's the key distinction between a Christian rationale for religious freedom, it, it kind of circling back here, and a classically liberal one, it's not that whatever the individual says is good is good. Um, religious freedom can be abused, and there are still responsibilities that come with that. The point is that we're saying is that it's not the state's role uh, to dictate what that good thing is in terms of, of worship. So, so that's kind of how we, we um, justify religious freedom, and that uh, leaves open a role for other institutions as well. And I think the danger is that sometimes we, we make the state uh, the ultimate institution and we forget about other institutions such as the church and the family and other and just the community more broadly. And, and those other institutions can help to balance that out, I would say, as, as someone who, you know, uh, doesn't really identify as a classical liberal that can help to um, uh, to rein in the excesses of of, uh, of rampant individualism that liberalism often leads to. In the book, uh, David talks about how there's pros and cons to to different ideologies, like like being a conservative, uh, mm -hmm. liberalism socialism which is helpful because sometimes we we polarize it and we just say okay well this is all bad or this is all good and it becomes idolatrous when we're just looking at these things narrowly and just to to, to harp on the point that you made about um finding value and virtue and principle outside of these political lanes so for example mm -hmm. one of the things that i thought was very profound that he brought up was that um, being a conservative or conservatism mm -hmm. is um, it counts as a caution, right? So, uh, what is your what what are you trying to conserve? So, conservative mm -hmm. conservatism isn't really a doctrine per se, but it is a way of um, adjusting to the culture or not adjusting, I should say. So, like for example, um, in order to get to be a conservative. You have to be a progressive, right? And he talks about how you know, especially if you're if you're from if you're from if you're reformed in your theology and you come from that camp, um, they're very conservative, right? Yes, <laughs> right. We're very conservative, right? So, meaning what that means is um, um, we conserve the values that the scriptures teach. Um, God mm -hmm. is holy, Trinity. We call out heresies and all that stuff, but. If you think about it historically, um, the church or uh, the reformers had to be progressive against the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. They had to be progressive mm -hmm. to get to the point to be conservative. So <laughs> for me now, I'm like, oh shoot, I don't, I don't, I no longer ascribe to that title, and I'm skeptical of how people use the idea of being a conservative. Mm -hmm. Totally. I, I want to jump in with a, a wonderful quote that I usually butcher, but I'm going to get it right this time. This is a guy, Michael Malice, who says, conservatives are progressives driving the speed limit. And, and the rationale there is so much of today's, <laughs> you know, 
conservative opinions were the progressive opinions 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And, mm-hmm. and so um, I think where Darnell's going and I would reconcile or uh, resonate with is that a lot of conservative opinions are slow down, don't change too much, as opposed to actually having a lot of principles that they're holding on to and saying, no, here's, mm-hmm. here's why what you're doing is wrong, as opposed to slow down, don't change. Like, um, and, and again, not to say that conservatives don't have those principles, but the way that they do it politics, they don't mm-hmm. apply the principles as a means of, of actually engaging. Right. Yeah. Cause, cause conservative and being a progressive, they don't have a clear criteria of, of what being conservative or being progressive means. Like, that's right. This is why you have to, especially as, as Christians, like, there, there are like these core values that the scriptures teach, like the sanctity of life. Like, that's a non negotiable. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I, no, I agree with that. And, and it's why, like you, Darnell, I'm, I'm not comfortable, you know, giving myself ideological labels because I find, you know, invariably it's not going to reflect um, my views. And, and ultimately it's, it's, a, it's taking a human label and it's trying to um, uh, project it onto my faith when, when the goal of my faith is to line up with scripture. And so, um, and so I think, you know, you, you touched on a really interesting point there with the reformers that there was a sense in which, um, you know, paradoxically, they were and were not conserving, right? Where they were trying to conserve the bedrock of scripture and get back to those first principles and express those through uh, the five solas. But there was another sense in which reform was needed and things needed to be pulled down. And so I think about that a lot as a Christian living you know, in the 21st century, this is obviously, uh, in some ways, theologically, we're kind of at a, a turning point and, you know, perhaps not so much a turning point, nothing is new under the sun, where it feels like, you know, um, kind of fundamentalism is is rearing its head again, and, and figuring out, you know, how to respond to that, because if we're not careful, fundamentalism and biblicism um, can can lead to a point where we kind of take these things as being um, a, a, as being like uh, non negotiable when they're not. Uh, and I'm not obviously talking about like the core doctrines of the faith here, right? I'm just talking about that that tendency um, to turn things uh, into ultimates when they're not. I I think it's um, I think Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary, put it this way that you know the pitfall for the liberal is that they see everything as uh, negotiable, but the pitfall for the fundamentalist is that they see everything as non-negotiable. And so, uh, again, this comes back to this idea of the conscience and, and being able to be somewhat maybe uncomfortable with, or, or rather comfortable with the fact that there are some issues that scripture does not always speak to uh, with 100% clarity. And there are going to be good faith disagreements uh, among Christians on those points. And and learning how to uh, continue to hopefully enjoy fellowship, even in the midst of that, and not uh, making scripture say more than it does. Because that's just as dangerous as denying that scripture says something. If, if we say that scripture says something it does not, we're saying that God has said something mm. which he hasn't necessarily said. 
And that's actually, that violates the third commandment. That's taking God's name in vain. And so that's something I've been reflecting a lot on, especially this past year with, you know, all the division and, and, um, and name calling that we've unfortunately seen amongst Christians with regard to our response to the pandemic uh, is, is very much to try to get back as much as I can to a position of humility where I can say this is a conscience issue and my conscience may be bound one way and and your conscience may be bound another but i think the point is that if if we're going to make something a conscience issue then we need to to have the willingness to accept that other christians aren't going to always come to the same conclusions we do and and that's hard it's it's not nice but but by recognizing those things that are secondary or tertiary issues we can maintain our unity as the church on the primary issues you know you you made a really good point sort of about um how you know, saying something that God doesn't say is taking the Lord's name in vain. Um, it reminded me uh, on the episode we actually had that, that came out yesterday. Um, Nick Hudson had this quote that he applied to a biblical context, and it was centralization destroys the means for error correction. And you know, it's it's what made me think of that quote is if we don't have the ability to sort of evaluate and question and and reflect on let's say what a pastor has said and say hey compared to scripture you're mm-hmm. wrong um we we are unable to correct that error or correct taking the lord's name in vain mm-hmm. and i i wanted to bring that you know context around back to what you had said about worship and mm-hmm. how I, i'm wondering where the the state fails to recognize when they're trying to shape allegiance they're influencing that concept of worship so mm-hmm. i think of totalitarianism and really totalitarianism's one of the first things they do is try to stamp out the religious communities that i would say the especially the religious communities that are not um both religious and government right you know how some of the religions have that sort of intermingling i think of the you know muslims for example and when are, I guess that goes back to that question I said before about how do we, you know, redefine separation of church and state such that we can prevent influencing or the government's ability to influence allegiance so that mm-hmm. there, there isn't that totalitarianism, let's say capacity, because I see that there's such an intertwining of totalitarianism and defy uh, and denying the ability to worship who you choose to worship yes so i think really what this comes down to is how we understand the concept of the religious neutrality of the state and what i've kind of said so far and, and you mentioned i've got this article that i'm, I'm currently trying to finish up where I, I basically broadly you know say that religious neutrality is a spectrum and we've got at the opposite ends of the spectrum we have what i call inclusive religious neutrality and closed religious neutrality and what inclusive religious neutrality, I think, gets right, and it's the one that I prefer, is that it recognizes that the very concept of religious neutrality is a conceit. And when I say conceit, I mean that, as we've been discussing, in one sense, it is impossible for the state to be religiously 
neutral. Again, going back to Lehman, uh, he, you know, he says that in, in the public square, there's only religious overlap and religious consensus. And so his conclusion that he draws from that is that there are no secular states, only pluralistic ones. Um, so that's what inclusive religious neutrality, I think, recognizes. And it recognizes the conceit of religious neutrality, but recognizes that it's a useful conceit. Because if the state is at least mindful of these realities and mindful of the fact that it is not to compel worship and it is not to compel worship by favoring or disfavoring particular religious groups, that helps to create an environment in which religious freedom and, and religious equality are guaranteed. Conversely, closed religious neutrality denies kind of the reality of this conceit. And it thinks of itself as being truly neutral, as being somehow truly a-religious, but really what it is, is a very sort of aggressive secularism. And in my view, this is what laiseity, which is what Bill 21 pursues, really embodies. It's a very closed approach to religious neutrality, and it says that uh, religion needs to be kept out of the public square. But of course, the problem when we do that is that what we're actually saying is that some people are more entitled to participate in public life than others. So those that close religious neutrality perceives to be um, uh, non-religious are welcome, but those who are visibly openly religious are less welcome. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting kind of going back to this idea of identity, Joel, that you uh, touched on um, a while back during this conversation. I was on a, an interview on um, Canadian Justice, uh, which is a show that, that the news, news Forum puts out. And we were talking about Bill 21 and we had a gentleman on uh, who, who represented um, a secular group and he was essentially arguing I remember, and I didn't have a chance to respond to this uh, at the time, so I'll do so now, that um, th that it's not wrong to require people to remove articles of religious clothing or garb, um, and that if they, you know, when they wear that, it's the same thing as if someone showed up uh, to a public role wearing um, a Liberal Party t-shirt, and mm. so they, they need to be neutral. But I don't think that's correct, and what I wish I had had the opportunity to say to him was, no, uh, by requiring them to remove their religious garb, it would be the same as if I required you to put religious garb on, as mm -hmm. if I required you to wear a crucifix if you wanted to come to work. Because, you know, and, and in this sense, um, visible religious minorities are a bit of a, at a bit of a disadvantage because they are the ones who are actually putting something on. But the point being that he is not being compelled to pretend uh, that he is anything other than an atheist right or an agnostic mm -hmm. i'm not sure which of the two he was but with um visible religious people when we pursue this inclusive vision of religious neutrality we're ensuring that there is a meaningful role for them uh in public life it's something that my uh, one of my professors from when i did my jd at osgood hall bruce Ryder, calls uh, equal religious citizenship, which is basically about ensuring that we, we don't create these two tiers of citizenship in our society based on uh, one's religious status, so that we, we need to be conscious of these things so that we can ensure that we are including uh, religious individuals in public life. Um, I, I think, at least my perspective is, you know, that guy who made that claim, I think there's a failure to dis to realize or see you know how how religion tries to voluntarily shape you 
Whereas the state, I like that's where like the liberal t-shirt versus let's say a religious t-shirt. The liberal mm. t-shirt is representing a monopoly. You know, I, I always use the term monopoly on violence, but but a government who can enforce things versus a voluntary society who wants to call you to a particular lifestyle or, right. or set of beliefs. I think it's just, I would argue for an atheist, there's a fundamental denial of that perspective. Yeah. And I think really what you're, what you're getting at there is, again, this comes down to um, the nature of the state's role versus the nature of the church's role, which helps us to distinguish between when the state is um, orient us, orienting us toward fulfilling the second commandment, converse, or, or, or on the other hand, when the state is compelling us to observe the first commandment, right? So, um, so in that regard, I, again, I'm quoting Lehman. Lehman says that the state has an authority of temporal coercion, but the church has authority of eschatological declaration. So they're both authorities, and crucially, they're both authorities that are exercised coterminously, right? They're exercised, you know, there isn't like, uh, like the religious sphere and then, you know, the public sphere, right? Like, as we've been talking about, they, they overlap. Um, and, and, you know, there isn't like a religious person and a public person, like we're, we're one whole person. Um, but it's, it's the nature in which those authorities are exercised and the types of authority that are exercised. And obviously that's maybe perhaps a little bit uh, less neat than than like a hard vision of sphere sovereignty where you have the church and the state and they just don't overlap. But if if we think about them, not even as like being a Venn diagram that has occasional points of overlap, but as, and depending on the type of authority being exercised, often being exercised simultaneously, uh, it, it gives a, a more nuanced picture of, of how those two institutions relate to one another. Mm -hmm. Now, now, if you can slightly change lanes, still yes. related, but slightly change lanes. Uh, so your specialty is constitutional law, right? Correct. Okay, so it's constitutional law. So how does like constitutional law relate to, um, or how do you interpret our religious freedom in light of constitutional mm -hmm. law, in light of uh, this these COVID? Um, COVID and, and, and it limiting church attendance or even, yeah, or stopping church attendance altogether. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you asked this because this is, like you say, this is kind of my, like academically, it's my area. This is what my, um, my supervised research project uh, at McGill is focusing on right now is okay, good. Uh, go, going beyond, um, not so much COVID, but going beyond the charter and trying to think about the ways in which our constitution more broadly affirms uh, fundamental freedoms. So um, uh, for, for those who don't know, the, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms was enacted in 1982 as part of this process called patriation, uh, because up until that point, our constitution was exclusively an act of the United Kingdom's parliament. And so with patriation, uh, our constitution became uh, a Canadian act, and it was subject now to amending formula such that we didn't have to go to uh, the UK Parliament every time we wanted to amend the Constitution. There were processes that would allow Parliament and the provinces here in Canada to amend it themselves. But what I'm trying to do is, is look beyond 
just the charter, which is a very specific instrument that guarantees things like religious freedom. And to think about how does this relate to our broader system of government? And I think the way we have to understand it is that uh, the charter guaranteed something much broader than what existed before it. And the, because of that, um, we th those guarantees are now subject to more limitations than they were before. Um, so the charter has has two sections, and, and Joel, this kind of goes back, you mentioned my piece in the post on, on Bill 21 and the notwithstanding clause. So under the charter, uh, rights and freedoms are all subject to limitation uh, under section one, which states that uh, the guarantees uh, are, are subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. And then we also have section 33, the notwithstanding clause, which only applies to sections two and seven through 15, which would include guarantees such as religious freedom. And that requires on its face, no such um, justification. But uh, the, the point simply being is that within a, a system of responsible parliamentary governance, which was instituted or, or constituted rather at confederation and arguably before, uh, there are certain minimal guarantees that are required. So you, you can't have parliamentary governance without some sort of guarantee of freedom of expression and freedom of religion. The difference between that and the charter is that those prior guarantees are necessarily absolute, um, whereas, um, whereas those in the charter um, would not be. So thinking about this in the COVID context, uh, no government has invoked the notwithstanding clause over any kind of COVID restrictions. And, and I think that's probably for the best. So when we're looking at the impact that COVID policies have had on religious freedom, we're looking that at this under the standard set by section one of the charter, which is the, the reasonable limits clause. And that has, um, that, that, that is very contextual and that, and that makes the analysis, um, somewhat unpredictable because it's going to depend on any number of factors and you know it feels like with covid like we're uh, the situation is updating so quickly and we're getting new evidence all the time about the nature of this virus and, and variants and you know vaccination rates and has this resulted in you know um, slower spread and all these things that whenever we're looking at uh, restrictions say on the size that churches can have for worship services uh, we need to be always looking at the evidence and we need to be looking at it in the moment. And so that I think has resulted throughout the pandemic in um, shifting levels of justification. So I think, you know, my own view is that probably if some of these things were litigated back at like the height of uh, the second or third wave, um, that it would have been a lot easier for the government to justify some of these restrictions. Um, that may not be the case moving forward because uh, the situation continues to evolve and hopefully we're at a point where um, the virus is, is less of a threat than it was, the, the level of risk is lower. And, uh, but, but I think ultimately, I don't know if this is going to continue to be litigated quite so heavily. Hopefully it will not just because governments will respond uh, and, and change the policies before we need to. And, and that's one of the benefits of having a charter of rights is that uh, it's not just remedial, it's also prescriptive. Um, and so it can compel governments, you know, preemptively to say, we better change this policy uh, before we're forced to do so because someone comes and, and brings a charter claim. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I would say, you know, I still, I think, you know, maybe where some of the value is on uh, the court cases is to, f- you know, put the government in a place where next time they must actually justify their position first as opposed to uh, fly by the seat of their pants and 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 let them run you know run wild based on um i mean i would say based on yesterday's podcast that came out um potentially a complete uh false hypothesis that that the data continues to cause to be revised And, and when i say false hypothesis what i'm getting at is the level of risk for the vast majority of the population was not at all uh, what the data now suggests, what we thought back in March, and so right. you know the you know take the original concept of like oh we need a thirty day emergency sure you know maybe the the original uh, concerns in March could be justified for a thirty day emergency but once you've got thirty days of looking for data and being able to validate or invalidate the government has controls in place to go no you no longer are justified and and I would argue what we saw. You know, we can use James Coates as an example, um, and and different scenarios throughout the the country. And sorry, Joel, just clarify who's James Coates for the listeners. Yeah, I mean, the uh, I think uh, we had a, an episode on that one. I I want to say one ten, but um, I could be wrong there. Uh, yeah, one ten. Pastor Coates arrest, persecution, or confusion is what we sort of talked about, uh, and and that was actually a, a, let's say a focus of the lost tape. Um, Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I'm just wondering, um, yeah, how how much does that um, even even let's say the last year sort of shape your concerns about how much the government um, lacks some, let's say, guardrails or bounds to make sure they don't veer into, let's say, totalitarianism? Totally. Well, I think it's, you know, probably clear based on the the conversation we've been having that I'm very much in favor of uh, very carefully circumscribing the government's authority and holding the government to that standard. So I absolutely agree with you that litigation is valuable for that reason alone, because um, constitutional litigation, that is, because what it does is it acknowledges that the government bears the onus of demonstrating that restrictions on the charter are demonstrably justified. And that's the key word there is demonstrably, right? So the government needs to establish on the basis of non-speculative evidence um, that these policies or any policy, anytime something is challenged on charter grounds is justified. So, you know, typically in, in the litigation process, the, the claimant would bear uh, the onus or, or the burden of proof at the first stage to show that the charter has been engaged. But uh, I think, uh, you know, somewhat this is more or less a good thing is that with freedom of religion, the bar is not set uh, particularly high. It's, it's, it's fairly easy to establish uh, a freedom of religion claim. It's not always a slam dunk. There are certain things that someone has to demonstrate, namely that they have a, a sincere religious belief that's been interfered with in a manner that's neither trivial nor insubstantial. That's the current you know, legal test that we have. And then it moves on to the government's onus to justify that. Um, now, of course, the the danger is is that if everything is always about justification, that courts are going to become more deferential to the government because they don't uh, want to be striking down the government's laws all the time. But but I think as Christians, it's it's good for us to kind of you know have that mindset of um, knowing when it's it's wise to bring a claim forward and and trying to be really prudent about it. And and I think this reflects even you know you look at. Um, 
the Apostle Paul's ministry, right? He was very intentional about when he asserted his rights as a Roman citizen and when he did not. And there were and there were times when he did, and there were times when he did not. And when he didn't, it was because it wouldn't have been for the benefit of the church, and it wouldn't have been for the benefit of the gospel. But there were times, such as his appeal to Festus, when he recognized that this was a good time to do it. And so I think as Christians, whether it's something like uh, COVID restrictions, um, I don't even think that's like the you know the fight of our of our um, of our generation i think you know there are potentially bigger battles coming down the pipe um where we need to be really intentional about how we engage with this and that comes down to this is kind of where i think it's it's good you know to have more christians involved in law who know how to put together a good test case right and know how to find a sympathetic client and know how to get the facts just right because as much as we would hope that um ultimately you know the law prevails um facts matter a lot and and sympathetic facts matter a lot and so being able to be strategic and being able to craft these claims such that it's going to make the church look sympathetic so that we can then hold the government to account i think is is really helpful and and just to clarify you know i'll i'll uh, and then I'll let you guys jump back in here because I've been talking for a while. I don't <laughs> think litigating is is uh, dishonoring to the government because what we're doing here in some ways reflects um, uh, the doctrine of the, the Reformation doctrine of, of the lesser magistrate, or in this case, the greater magistrate. We're holding the government to the standard set by our constitution. And, and this is the law with which all laws must apply. And so when we're doing this, um, we're, we're actually, I think, engaging in good citizenship as long as we're bringing these claims in good faith and we're not bringing frivolous claims there's nothing wrong with saying to the government okay well you say this um but we want you to demonstrate why this is um why this is justified right whether that mm -hmm. be like a restriction on the size of, of religious gatherings during a pandemic or or what have you and that's a very separate conversation from conversations over civil disobedience right because when we litigate we're actually acting within the realm of the law and, and we're using uh the law to uphold the law uh there's a a really good point you made in the lost tapes, or maybe it's just a good quote that I think uh, expounds what you were saying or, or really summarizes what you're saying. And I, I was hoping you can explain it. Um, so you were talking about how, you know, being very strategic in the court cases you bring and the statement mm -hmm. you made on, on was no precedent is better than a bad precedent. Yes. And, and I, I want you to sort of explain why that would be essentially why would it be why is it bad to bring a bad court case on, let's say, a constitutional challenge such that you end up with a bad precedent? Yeah, when we I mean, when I think when we look back uh, at the past year and a half, I mean, there have certainly been some case, uh, some claims that have been brought regarding pandemic restrictions on places of worship that have been better than others. And I think the problem is because we work in what's called a common law system and we have this doctrine that's called uh, stare decisis, which means that w when, um, when a ruling is made, uh, it needs to be followed by other courts. So at the superior court level, technically uh, a ruling by another superior court judge isn't strictly binding, but it is what we would say very persuasive. And ideally other judges need to follow that precedent that has been set. But once we start to get higher up um, in, in the chain, once we get to courts of appeal and the Supreme Court, 
in those cases, uh, uh, the precedents are in fact binding. So if you have someone, a pastor or a church that is, is very keen to litigate something, but the facts are not sympathetic or they have not uh, crafted their claim particularly well, um, then bringing that to the courts may result in, um, in a ruling, for example, that uh, in their case, religious freedom, uh, any restriction on religious freedom was demonstrably justified. Now, obviously, different facts means that that precedent isn't necessarily going to be binding. But the reality is we now have this precedent on the books that makes it more difficult for other people with more sympathetic sympathetic facts to bring these sort of claims. And so I think when we're looking at these uh, scenarios, I mean, this is why, again, I think we need to have Christian lawyers who can help churches work through this and who can be really candid and not just tell you know people what they want to hear, but to say, you know what, this is probably not going to result in the outcome you want, and it's going to make things more difficult for other people. So we need to have a little bit of um, of collaboration or cooperation rather uh, to ensure that the the claims that we do bring are the right claims and are going to set that precedent and are going to make things easier uh, for other churches, not more difficult. Um, I think uh, the the one question I I would sort of that's been wondering running around in my head um, that I think maybe a lot of Christians are asking is you know take a look at Alberta. Right, they mm-hmm. they essentially took Grace Life Church sort of custodianship, and if I'm not mistaken, they've essentially given it all back. You know, now that they've mm-hmm. rolled back their restrictions, it's almost it was almost like oh, all the things we did were temporary measures to get you to do what we needed you to do, and now that you know Alberta's saying it's over, you know, run free. And so you know, to some extent, it's you know what you've said about like okay, let's not litigate to craziness for things that are, are resolved, but we do need to litigate, let's say, the, the government to restrain them. So I'm just wondering if you have some maybe insight into how that unfolded and, and you know, where does that sit? Am I right to think that basically they've sort of rolled everything back um, and, and that church is back now where it should be? Yeah, I'm not actually sure specifically, uh, just because I've been so caught up in in other projects, what the current situation uh, with Grace Life is. But certainly, I mean, this is part of the strategic element is asking ourselves, do we want to litigate something, uh, a law that may not even be on the books or or, or may not be in effect rather uh, within a matter of weeks or months, right? Because litigation takes time and money and and you have to ask yourself, what are we... um, what are we putting our resources into? Are we better saving those resources for for other challenges that are going to come? But you know, the situation with James Coates, I, I wrote that editorial in the post about him back in February. And what I said at the time is that what happened to him, I think, was very much a constitutional abnormality uh, that you would have um, a pastor who is um, who is arrested because he refuses to refrain from preaching to the full assembly of his church. And I just want to emphasize that is that he wasn't prohibited in terms of his um, uh, in, in the terms of his release from, from preaching. He just was told that he could not violate COVID restrictions, which meant that he could not uh, preach to the entirety of his church, that he would end up uh, imprisoned for that is just such an abnormal and, and weird situation. Uh, and we'll see what happens um, 
I, be I believe he was actually ultimately released, so I don't think there's any more litigation with that going on. But, um, but, but I think you know, kind of going back to your question, Joel, um, it the difficulty with that particular instance and what um, what so many of us found so unsettling uh, was the question of whether or not. Um, he was being made an example of in order mm -hmm. um, to discourage other churches. Um, now, you know, there's a question about was was Pastor Coates um, inviting this, right? He was very vocal and, and he, he was not trying to hide certainly um, what he was doing. But at the same time, you, you look at the way in which they came down on him. And if, if the goal of the state in this case was to uh, get his church to comply with COVID restrictions and to encourage other churches to do the same, they failed because the church just ended up meeting, uh, continuing to meet at full capacity and other churches joined them in solidarity. So I think there was an unfortunate um, and really unsettling instance there of, of James Coates kind of being made uh, an example of. And, and I think this also happened uh, with Tim Stevens. Uh, in Calgary, uh, when, you know, this was an example of where the state could have used a much less heavy handed approach uh, to if the goal was to promote compliance. And this is unfortunate where we where we see this kind of tension between uh, the state and church leaders. And I think, you know, it's it's why we need to um, it's why we need to have a good theology of, of church state relations. And it's why as Christians, we also need to be, you know, smooth as serpents and innocent as doves as we mm -hmm. um, Right. We approach these these questions and, and, and making sure that what we're doing, uh, as Paul did when we assert our rights, are ultimately for the benefit of the church, even if that might occasionally mean having to deal with unjust policies and unjust governments. There's there's an element here of wisdom. And and, and again, this comes back to conscience. It means that we're going to land in different places about whether or not something is is advisable or wise or not. So, yeah. I mean, when you talk about the government making an example of somebody, you know, I also think of the Adamson barbecue. I, I'm curious, like, is that something that is, is, you know, the government exploiting its role for a different means, right? Like, I, I my understand, like, the reason I say it that way is like the, the purpose of the, um, you know the consequences of them violating the law was already there as an example of the of don't do this mm -hmm. and now they you know because someone still went against it they've decided to go let's say excessively heavy-handed and, and adamson barbecue in my opinion is a great example because they tried to give him a bill for one hundred eighty thousand dollars for the amount of cops that they used to to essentially confiscate his property um and and i just look at that going like is there a way for us to restrain that because that just seems inappropriate and you know, from a, a perspective of equal opportunity or equality, um, it doesn't seem like, you know, the state is sort of applying its principles uh, in a, a just or, or reasonable manner. It's sort of making judgment calls on the guilt, you know, the, the idea of like innocent until proven guilty is sort of thrown out the window. Yeah, I think in those kind of cases where you have uh, a constitutional challenge being brought, there, there is an opportunity under the charter, under section uh, 24.1, to also claim charter damages. And so if you had a situation where, uh, and, and you had evidence that someone was being um, 
made an example of where other uh, businesses or individuals were not, you know, there would be an opportunity there to to claim damages. Um, of course, you know, complicating this, you, you mentioned like Addison, Adamson Barbecue is that, you know, you've, you've got kind of the social media element to all of this, right? Where people are very much, uh, some people are trying to, to make this into a big fight and who want to invite attention. And so I, I think what the, what our, governing authorities need to do in those cases is exercise wisdom and knowing um you know w- when uh they're just indulging that and when that's working against their own um uh th- their own priorities and their own objectives right uh because certainly you look at you know Addison barbecue and that kind of became a lightning rod for for the protests and, and GoFundMes and all of this stuff um right. you know in, in that particular case um we'll see if he brings another constitutional challenge his um for for a variety of reasons his initial one was uh was tossed out of court because it was not properly uh, uh claimed and, and again i think that just goes back to the point of making sure that uh that when we bring these things that we do so in a very um strategic uh manner right and that we are um we're not just kind of throwing um uh, whenever we're litigating anything on a constitutional basis that we're putting together the most persuasive case that we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and maybe we'll have to invite you back when, when, and if that whole court case is done, maybe we can debrief, you know, maybe that thing from cradle to grave, especially, you know, again, if he brings it and there's a, a, a conclusion that, um, you know, has some meat to it that we might want to break out. Well, he's raised hundreds of thousands of dollars on GoFundMe, so I imagine that uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he's not he done has, yet. <laughs> he has the capacity to keep moving forward if he wants to. So, yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Well, we want to thank you uh, for coming on on the show and being gracious with your time. Uh, but I, I just had uh, just for the listeners, can you let them know about your future projects? Because I, I heard you had a podcast coming out. Yep, that's right. So I mentioned kind of at the start of the show that I am really trying to prioritize things like rest and not stretching myself too thin. (laughs) And so unfortunately, the the podcast has been a bit of a a casualty uh, toward that that greater end of uh, getting rest. But I did start up a podcast in the spring before I started my position with the Ready Meat Society called Concurring in Part. There's currently really only um, there's a trailer and there's a teaser. that's uh, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, and the teaser is uh, an interview I did um, with uh, a local radio station, uh, 570 News, back in the spring with regard to uh, some of the stuff that was happening in Waterloo with Trinity Bible Chapel. Uh, I have the first interview recorded for the podcast uh, elsewhere, so I'm hoping to get that online soon. And, and hopefully as I'm, as I'm able on the side, uh, I can do that. And then otherwise, in terms of future projects, I'm uh, going to keep writing where I can. Right now, I'm kind of um, not taking a hiatus so much, but I'm focusing more on uh, longer uh, papers uh, than I am editorials. And uh, there's not a whole ton that I think I need to write about in terms of editorials at the moment, but you never know. Uh, trying to Things change my, quickly. <laughs> things change quickly. Trying to finish up my master's research project, which I hope to have published after. And that kind of goes into some of the stuff we were talking about, you know, with regard to the notwithstanding clause and, and the 1867 act and all that. And uh, yeah, but otherwise, you know, there'll be lots of interesting stuff uh, certainly coming out with the Runnymede Society. Uh, so be sure to follow us on uh, Instagram and the website where we've got some uh, some cool events planned uh, that we're currently in the process of putting together, hoping to come roaring back after a, a pandemic year where most of our events were online and 
I'm excited yeah. uh, for what the next year is going to bring. Yeah. And, and where can they get in touch with you? I'm on Twitter uh, at K Kinsinger, K-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R. And uh, that's, that's the best way to get in touch with me. I'm also on like LinkedIn, Instagram, all that stuff too. Okay. And I'll make sure I uh, put all that stuff in the show notes page, make it easy for the listener. Um, yeah, my DMs are open. Awesome. We definitely appreciate your time. Um, you know, we, there's, I, I just think of, you know, as we were starting this episode, I was like, oh, we finally have somebody who actually knows what they're talking about when it comes to law instead of Darnell <laughs> and I trying to like, hey, the charter says, uh, I think this is what it means. So yeah, I a think- little bit though. I mean, you know, the more you, the more you study these things, right, the more you realize how complicated it is. And, and so I'm obviously, you know, I've got my area and I'm pretty early on in my career. So I'll you know, I mentioned Derek Ross. I would definitely encourage people to check him out. He's been doing this longer than I have, and and he's just a, a terrific scholar and thinker, and he's put out some some really thoughtful stuff. So so also follow uh, CLF's website uh, and and read their blog as well. And and you know the people there have a very good way about uh, explaining the law in a way that's accessible uh, for for Christians and and that speaks to you know how the law impacts us. Yeah, sounds mm-hmm. good. Yeah, well, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your two cents with us. Thank you, brothers. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. But you heard me? Does that make sense? Madden and Mitchell Media.